It is good to see everybody today, good to be together for, uh, for worship. And we're going to continue this morning our, our kind of look at some of the stories and, and the parables of Jesus. Uh, but before we get there, has anybody else been watching the Olympics this week? A few of us maybe, probably. Okay, good. Uh, I, watched, I watched a lot more early this week. My, the rest of my family was out of town, so I said at nights, I'm just going to sit on the couch and watch the Olympics. And so that's what I did in the evenings while they were gone. And it was nice. And of course, if you did any watching or keeping up with the Olympics, you probably know that the big story this week was, of course, Simone Biles and everything that happened with her and the gymnastics team. And so I'm sure most know about that at this point, but just in case you don't, Simone Biles is a U.S. gymnast who withdrew from competition early this week after the first rotation of the team gymnastics finals. And Biles did this, she said, because she was not mentally prepared to continue. And so she wisely chose to prioritize her mental, physical, and emotional well-being by withdrawing from the competition and allowing her teammates to step into the vacated spot in the competition, where they then went on to win the silver medal. And the, after that, the aftermath of that, that decision produced a great number of responses that ranged the spectrum, as you might expect, in today's sort of polarizing environment, right? Uh, some of those responses were predictably insensitive and cruel and self-interested, which seems to be what happens a lot of times online as people just want to get their take out there. Uh, but the ma vast majority of their responses were supportive and encouraging. And I think that the amount of support that she received was evident in part because of a tweet from Biles herself. And again, this is a tweet that many of you may have already seen, but it was a tweet that I think revealed something incredibly tragic on one hand, while also highlighting what I think was a positive outcome from this incredibly difficult situation that she was going through. And so here's what she said in this tweet. She said, The outpouring of love and support I've received has made me realize I'm more than my accomplishments and gymnastics, which I never truly believed before. And so the first time I read that tweet, I was like immediately filled with both sadness and joy for her. Uh, now, to be clear, I recognize fully that I have no idea what it's like to be Simone Biles <laughs> and to try to represent your family country under the extreme pressure and circumstances that she was under, especially this year when she's the games have been delayed a year, she's on the other side of the world, family, friends can't be there, like it's just pressure on top of pressure. And so I don't want to pretend that I know anything about the specifics of what she was experiencing. But when I read that tweet, I did connect with the broader struggle and burden that comes from attaching your value and your identity to your ability to perform tasks well. And I did connect with the concept of defining your self-worth by the approval of others. And I imagine that many others can relate to those struggles as well. 
But sometimes difficult and painful situations can have unexpectedly positive and uplifting results. And so I'm glad that one of the results of, of everything that she has gone through is this newfound ability that she seems to, to have acquired or, or realized uh, to distinguish her value and identity as something separate from her accomplishments or her ability as a gymnast. Yeah. And that shift in perspective came because she started listening to different voices. And I think what we find a lot of times is that when we arrive at a place where our worth and our value is, is tied to accomplishments and tasks, or when we are overcome with self-doubt or self-defeating thoughts, it is at least in part because we give ear to negative voices. Sometimes those negative voices are in our own head when we put pressure on ourselves that, that no one else is putting on us. Sometimes those negative voices can be external. We start listening to the wrong people and, and letting people who generally don't have our, our self-interest at heart in the things that they are sharing with us or telling us. But I think Simone Biles' words are a reminder that a shift in who or what we are listening to can have an incredible impact on our perspective, on our mindset, and on how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. And so I think there are at least a couple of questions that we can take both from everything that happened with Simone Biles this week and in turn, I think, also from the parable that we're going to be looking at this morning. And those questions are something like this. What are the voices that we are listening to? And what does that lead to in our lives? And so with all that in mind, uh, we're going to be in Luke 16 this morning. So if you want to turn to Luke 16, you can turn there. We're going to pick up in verse 19 here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, the words aren't going to be on the screen this morning, but if you have the Bible app, we still, we've been doing one of those live events on the YouVersion Bible app every Sunday. All the text should be listed out there. So whatever, if you want to use your phone, you may can, can find it there. If you don't want to use the Bible app on, on your own phone, whatever you may have, or you can just be old-fashioned and use a paper Bible if anyone still brings those <laughs> to church anymore. Uh, but Luke 16 is where we're going to be in just a minute. And this is a, this is a very unique parable. And I say that for a few different reasons. Uh, for one thing, it is a parable that is seemingly devoid of, of a lot of the context that we have in other parables. Uh, many of Jesus' other parables are told like in direct response to a question that's asked of him, or they are obviously connected to like a situation that he finds himself in, like a dinner, or, or kind of he notices things around him, things like that. Uh, but there's none of that kind of overt context in this story. I think there's a, there's a little bit of context, I think, that Luke gives us from some of the words that Jesus has beforehand, and we're going to get into that a little bit later, but not too much because we won't take time to dig into all that this morning. But, but it is at least not as clear as some of the other parables that Jesus tells. And similarly, there's no explanation from Jesus at the end of the parable, at least not that Luke gives us. We just have this parable, Jesus tells it, and we kind of move on to other stuff. No explanation, no response from the crowd. Like last week, if you were with us last week, the Pharisees' response to the story clued us into, all right, Jesus is saying something to the religious leaders here. They recognized it, everybody knew it. 
And so we don't really have any of those clues that kind of help us to discern what is Jesus getting at here? Why is he telling this story and what we're supposed to get? What are we supposed to get from it? And so it's a little bit tricky as far as parables go just for those reasons. Uh, Another reason that this parable is unique is because it's the only parable that Jesus tells where people are specifically given names, where the people in in the story have given names. Uh, we're going to find Abraham and Lazarus, a man named Lazarus in this story. And so some people have taken that to mean that this isn't a parable at all, but this is Jesus recounting actual events that happened because it's the only story uh, where Jesus gives actual names. But I think we find that that doesn't really match up with the way that Jesus talks or teaches anywhere else in his ministry. And so I think this is a parable. Uh, to me, it's pretty clearly a parable. And I think one of the reasons it's important to view it that way is that I think one of the things we're going to find is I don't think Jesus is making theological or or factual points about the exact nature of the afterlife in this story. And I think some people have tried to turn it into that, especially if you view it as a factual kind of story that Jesus is retelling, that it can become, well, Jesus is saying something to us about the nature and sort of the setup of heaven and hell. And I don't think that's what he's getting at in this story. Even in the imagery of of Abraham, for instance, it seems to be connected to Jewish thoughts about death and the afterlife and and being welcomed into the bosom of Abraham. That was a common Jewish thought, that you would go to the side of Abraham when you died, or you would be welcomed into the bosom of Abraham as someone who is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham. And I sort of think of that as, you know, if we told a joke about heaven today, we might start it with someone died and and they went and they talked to Peter at the pearly gates, you know. And when we say that, we're not making a theological point about what happens when you get to heaven. We're just kind of connecting with shared imagery or or a plot point that, that all of us are going to sort of immediately connect with in some way. And so that's sort of what I hear Jesus doing in this parable and connecting the side of Abraham or, or using Abraham as kind of the voice of, of God or heaven, basically, throughout this story. And the other name, too, that we are given in this story, that of Lazarus, I think fits the narrative in the story in, in a couple of different ways that help drive home Jesus' point that he's getting at. And we'll come back to that after we read through the story and have kind of read through it together. Uh, So we'll come back to Lazarus, but for now, let's go ahead and read the story, and then we'll talk about it a little more afterwards. So again, this is Luke 16, picking up in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more distinct uh, disparity between two people, right? Jesus wants us to get that pretty clearly from the very beginning of this story. These are two men coming from very different positions and places in life. As they're as far apart in any social, social economic, you know, distinction, whatever you can think of, these men are complete opposites. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. 
the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Uh, so one more quick note here. Interestingly enough, we're told almost nothing about like the actions of either the rich man or the, this poor man, the rich man or Lazarus, in their kind of earthly lives. But I do think it's sort of a condemning element of this story that the rich man, too, knows Lazarus's name. In other words, this isn't some anonymous person. Uh, the rich man knew him. And so, you know, assumptions are dangerous, right? We shouldn't make too many assumptions. But I almost wonder if part of what Jesus is wanting us to get here is that this rich man knew about Lazarus' circumstances and had every capability of doing something about it. But he didn't. Uh, now, we don't know the reasons why. We don't know why that happened. But for whatever reason, it seems that he, he could have done something. He knew Lazarus and knew his circumstances, but he didn't do anything. Uh, so, we keep going. But Abraham replied, oh, before I get to this part, I should say, again, assumptions are done dangerous, but one of the th reasons I think we can take that from this story is that otherwise we're just left with the rich man's only crime is that he was rich. And I don't think that's it. Um, Jesus doesn't ever say, you know, money is evil. In Scripture, we have things like money is the root of evil because sometimes it can turn us off to the need for God, turn us off to the needs of others, whatever. Uh, but the crime is never that you have money. The crime for everyone, regardless of how much money you have or don't have, is are you, are you receptive to the needs of others and are you encouraging supportive and supportive and helpful of those around you? And that's a lesson that's true whether we live in luxury every day <laughs> or whether we don't. Uh, so, continuing then, Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. <laughs> In other words, I have five brothers who are just as much of clueless jerks as I was. That's editorializing a little bit, but you know. <laughs> Let him warn them, so that they also so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to, them, to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. 
And so now, I don't know about you, but I like to imagine that when Jesus finishes this story, this is when I would have liked to know a little bit about what Jesus did afterwards, right? Because I like to imagine that Jesus teach, tells this story, gets to the end, and right as he says, like, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, he kind of gives a little wink and a nod, like maybe to no one in particular, or maybe to a lady at the back who, as Jesus would say, has ears to hear. Uh, because what's about to happen? Jesus is about to die, rise from the dead, and not everyone will be convinced. <laughs> and so I, I think on one hand, like our initial reaction to this story, if, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we may hear this story and start to think, well, hold on, Jesus. Like, I think you may actually be wrong on this one. Like, no offense, no offense, but, but I think maybe someone would be convinced if someone came from the dead and said something to me. Like, Jesus, here, I want you to watch A Muppet Christmas Carol. Just watch this movie, and I think it'll prove my point. Like, Scrooge's life is literally turned around by ghosts coming to visit him. A Muppet Christmas Carol is the best rendition of that story. Um, so, like, that's, that's what that whole story is about. Here, read some Dickens, Jesus, and I think you'll see ghosts have the power to change someone's perspective. And Jesus says, go well, actually, no. Actually, if someone came back from the dead, it wouldn't make any more impact on your brothers than what they already have. Which I think is interesting for us to consider. Uh, I think Jesus here is connecting something that he's already kind of talked about. Again, I said there's a little bit of context right before this story. Well, right before this story, Jesus says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And that's what Jesus came to preach and proclaim. That's what he came to share with those who had ears to hear. And all of that, of course, is as he is on the way to the cross to die and then be resurrected. And so I think there's a bit of a nod towards Jesus' resurrection at the end of this story. But the rich man, the rich man comes along and, and he is ready to enact this sort of ancient version of a Christmas carol that says, but if someone, if someone could go and visit them and show them the error of their ways, then they would be changed. But Jesus says, no, they already have everything they need. They just aren't listening. The rich man's brothers had all the voices they need in order to repent and to be changed people. They just weren't listening. And I think that's a theme of the parables in general. This, there's this, this invitation in the parables to have ears that hear. It's something Jesus repeatedly says, something we've talked about in this series. And there's this question, I think, that underlies all these parables of, are you listening? <laughs> are you paying attention? Do you hear what I'm saying? And in turn, are you willing to let it impact how you see yourself, how you behave, how you see those around you, and how you envision the kingdom of God. I mentioned earlier that we'd come back to Lazarus' name after reading the story. Uh, well, Lazarus' name, the name Lazarus, comes from the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God has helped. And interestingly, Ebenezer, from a Christmas carol, Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer literally means stone of help, and in the Old Testament, that name is connected with God helping his people as well. I don't know if there's a connection there. I didn't dig that deep into it, but it's interesting, at least when I think the, 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 the uh, 
the plots of those stories sort of line up with what the rich man is wanting. Uh, And this story that we have this morning, this story is about God helping and comforting this man named Lazarus, whose name means God has helped. It's about God helping this man named Lazarus who no one helped or comforted in his early life. And that is precisely what I think this story is about. It's a story about God helping and comforting and seeing those who others may overlook. It's about a rich man who had the opportunity to comfort and help this man, Lazarus, but who, for whatever reason, failed to do so. And so perhaps it is very intentional that Jesus gives the unseen beggar a name while the wealthy man in the story goes nameless and anonymous. Because that seems to be what Jesus does within his teachings and and that seems to be what Jesus is proclaiming about the nature of the kingdom, that in the kingdom, the unseen are seen and the seen go unseen. And so there's certainly an application here as we think about being aware of the needs of those around us and comforting those that may be overlooked by society. This is a story that invites us to take inventory of our surroundings and and to ask ourselves if there are any Lazaruses going unnoticed or uncared for around us. Who may be sitting at our gates that we may be uniquely positioned to help or to assist? But beyond that, I think it's also an invitation to consider the extent to which the story of the resurrected Jesus has had an impact on our lives. Have we allowed the story of a resurrected Savior who has himself risen from the grave to transform us and bring about the change in our lives that oftentimes we know we are in need of? Or perhaps stated more broadly and plainly, Am I listening to the right voices? Ultimately, I think this parable invites us to consider that because of God's work in Christ, because of of the message of Jesus and through his resurrection, we already have all that we need in order to repent and to make the changes that we are in need of. And so if we haven't made those changes, perhaps the question is, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for someone to rise from the dead? Or will we listen to the one who already has? Like the rich man in the story, I think we sometimes convince ourselves that if we just had some kind of miraculous sign, like if God would just show up in some grand gesture and show me what I needed to do and and tell me what I needed to do in my life, then, then I would make changes, then I'd do something. But I think what we find, if we're truly honest with ourselves, is a lot of times that's just an excuse for not doing the things that we know we need to be doing already. That we know what we need to do, but we say, well, if there was some grand gesture, and God the whole time is saying, just open your eyes and look around. I've given you every opportunity to do something. The question is, are you going to notice? The question is, are you going to allow the Spirit of God to transform you and to bring about changes? Uh, Now, to be clear, To be clear, I don't think that we can take this story to mean that external factors or voices of other people can never impact change in our lives. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. I don't think that's the point. Uh, Sometimes those external factors that may be needed to enact change can include the, the voices and the support and encouragement of others. 
Uh, I mean, this is a story about a man who seems to ignore the needs of others around him, right? So I don't think we can ignore that part of the story. So sometimes external factors that we may be in need of may be relationally based. Sometimes external factors are counselors or doctors, self-care, medicine. There are things in this world that we may be needed at times uh, to bring about changes or to conquer something or overcome something. There are many times when the intervention of another person or group can bring about a, a change or a shift in perspective. There are times when the support of our friends and family can have lasting impact, or in the case of Simone Biles that I referenced earlier this morning, sometimes when the support of an entire country is not only helpful but needed. But I think the principle at the heart of this story and, and what this story invites us to consider is that the gospel of Christ contains all that we need for spiritual transformation. Uh, now, does God utilize various voices in our life to bring the gospel to life? Absolutely. But the message of Christ is that we, in, in Christ, we are given a new heart. We are transformed. We are given new life our old self dies and is resurrected in the resurrected Christ. This is what the gospel, this is what the message is all about. Not that you need something else in order to bring these things about, but that in Christ we are given those things. We are made new, we are transformed. And so the question for us becomes, are we going to listen to the voice of the one who rose from the dead and internalize his message and allow his spirit bring about transformation and renewal. And we listen, we do this act of listening through prayer, through time spent in worship, through time spent in relationship with other people and through our own personal time in God's word and in study of his word so we can recognize his voice and we can know the voice of the Savior and be able to hear his voice above the others that may be trying to have influence in our heads and in our lives. And so this morning, if you are in need of a change in behavior, then God's word calls you to emulate the character, the integrity, and the determination of Christ as you follow him. If you are in need of, of a change of heart, then trust that those of us who are in Christ have been given a new heart through the indwelling of his spirit. And if you are in need of a change in perspective, then know that God's word calls you to hear and understand that you are loved, you are valued, and that you are highly favored. And you are those things now as you are because of who you are in Christ, because you are a beloved and celebrated child of God, not because of anything that you can do or accomplish. And so this morning... This morning, we are gonna share in a communion meal together that celebrates Christ and what he has done for us, that commemorates this new life that we are given in Christ, uh, that recognizes and, and remembers Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the new life that is open to us because of that. And so as we share in this, this meal this morning, uh, may we be encouraged for, uh, for the voice of God to ring loudly in our ears and our hearts and in our minds. And as the song plays, as we share in this meal, may we be reminded that the call is for God and, and for Christ to be our vision, 
uh, to be what leads us in this life, to be what transforms us and guides us in our own paths and journeys. And so as we share in this meal, uh, may you use this time as a time of prayer, a time for reflection and contemplation as we remember all that Christ has done for us. And so would you stand as we, we're gonna pray our prayer of confession together as we, we prepare to share in communion um, and then we will we'll have that time of reflection and communion together this morning. As we typically do, I'll pray the parts in white and then together we'll pray the parts in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen.